Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's something comforting about the timelessness of playground games, the ones I knew as Tag or Ring Around the Rosies. Our correspondent says there's more to it. Those games are a conduit for culture, and they too have been infected by COVID. Mural painting has a long history in Mexico. It started with the Olmecs, the region's first major civilization, and ran well into the 20th century with Diego Rivera. Now, a suburb of Mexico City is trying to revive that tradition. First up, though. In an address to Britain's parliament yesterday, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, vowed to fight Russia in... Forests, fields, and shores. Україну так само як ви не хотіли втратити свій острів, коли нацисти готувались розпочати битву. It was a deliberate echo of Winston Churchill's most famous wartime speech, stealing Britain's parliament and its people as German forces advanced across France in 1940. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. There's doubtless plenty of fighting spirit in the country, but many people are seeking safety abroad. The United Nations said two million people had already fled. In what seems to be a rare ceasefire success, 5,000 people escaped from the northeastern city of Sumy. Repeated ceasefire violations and civilian deaths have destroyed any trust on the ground. But Russian media said more escape corridors were being set up. For the capital Kiev, Chernihiv to the north, Mariupol to the south, and Kharkiv, very near the Russian border. Not everyone is making an escape plan, though. Honestly, it feels like it's been ages since that morning we last spoke. Yeah, I know. It feels like it's been weeks or something. What's it been like there since yesterday? It seems from everything I'm reading that it's... Gone. Last week, we told you about Dmitry, a 27-year-old living in Kharkiv. He'd been in daily contact with one of the show's editors, Kim Gittleson. We've kept in touch as the war has been playing out in Ukraine's second largest city. I'm all right, I'm not broken, and until a few minutes ago, I was enjoying a quiet evening. I haven't heard an explosion for a couple of hours, and I haven't heard of anyone dying in my city from a Russian missile since this morning, but it's back again. 
It was especially rough yesterday. Somewhere around 10 p.m. the whole city heard a fire bomber or something flying circles around us. And every time you hear a whoosh, you know, a loud boom would follow. And I must admit that's one of the most terrifying sounds I've ever heard in my life. Makes you feel like an ant. I helped most of my big family leave. My sisters, their husbands, their children, my father, my brother and other relatives left by car. It sounds like you're planning on staying. Um, and I'm just wondering why. The main reason I can't leave is probably because of my mother. She's staying and she's staying because, and I quote, this is my home. And she plans on volunteering and help people with supplies if she can. And I want to be able to help her if she needs it. I perhaps naively feel like I can survive this and perhaps do some good. On Friday, a fire broke out at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Ukraine's president is appealing for help to avert a catastrophe after his government accused Russian forces of firing at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. We messaged Dmitry to find out if he'd seen the news. I woke up at 6 a.m. today and realized that somewhere during the night I lost the cell service. My Wi-Fi died a couple of days ago, so I feared to lose all communications. Got my hands on a hotspot Wi-Fi only to find out that Russians are attacking a power plant. The largest power plant in Europe. Our president addressed Ukraine in a quick video telling us with a really tired face that he's already talking to world leaders about it. They have fired at our houses, our schools, our communication towers. They destroyed my city center, killing hundreds of innocent people in the process. And now this? Every day I find myself still being able to be surprised and fear even more. By Saturday, protesters had turned out in their thousands in cities all over the world. As we told you yesterday, in Russia and in places like Kherson, the southern Ukrainian city captured by Russian forces. But Kharkiv remained under attack. Hey, how are you doing? It feels crazy to me that we're still sending voice memos back and forth. I hope you're holding up okay and that your mom's okay. I'm alive. Um, I'm good. I've just been preoccupied with stuff. The city still stands, even though the center is messed up. All my favorite places are basically just ruins. Also, my sister left me a cat when she left the city. So I have a cat now. And I also have to think about cat foods and, and the litter and all that stuff, which, well, it's actually nice. It's fluffy and it's cute. And it 
takes my mind off things. There is this fighter bomber or something running in circles around the city. So this, this sound, that's what I hear 24-7 outside my window. A friend of mine, she sent a picture of a shell a hundred meters from her own house to her father in Moscow. And he said, it's Photoshop. I kept thinking, like, it's his daughter. How could you even think? It's hard for me to fathom. My grandmother is originally from Russia. Actually, both of my grandmothers are. That technically makes me 50% Russian. And my native language is Russian, not Ukrainian. Like most of the people I know in Kharkiv speak Russian. I always consider myself, well, kind of Russian, especially when I talk to someone outside of Ukraine. It got a little bit more complicated after 2014. Some people even knew that Russia and Ukraine have a conflict. Most people don't, though. I guess they do now. Overnight, the shelling intensified. That bombing sound is now constant. I can't even tell where it's coming from, or if it's our troops or theirs, or what is it. These are the ones that scare me. Dimitri sent a terrifying video from his balcony. You could see the bombs going off in the background. By Monday, Russia had announced it would create humanitarian corridors for civilians looking to leave Kiev, Mariupol, and Kharkiv. But those routes lead into Russia, making them a non-starter for Ukrainians. Hey, I hope you got some sleep. Uh, I don't know how you could with that, but maybe a little bit. Hey, yeah, I'm still alive. Never thought I'd actually use this phrase literally so often. The explosions got quieter later at night. But before they did, I was thoroughly demoralized for a moment, listening to all those fights. One girl in a relatively small chat group of trusted people recorded a voice message saying her building was hit, crying, asking for help with trembling voice. Her old neighbor was trying to rescue his wife out of the rubble, yelling her name, Ola, Ola. The way she cried gave me chills. Yesterday, I volunteered to help. I had a few addresses of these old or disabled people without food or medicine, so me and my mother went to a store early in the morning. Luckily, the store situation got a bit better and I didn't have to stand in a line for five hours outside of the store. Instead, it was only two hours inside. The hardest problem is to contact these old people. They're not good with tech. One old lady tried to find bread for her and her paralyzed husband and went outside without her phone. I didn't know her apartment number. An almost blind woman couldn't even find her fridge. It took me a while to sort all the food, explaining everything and learning her feet by touch so that she remembers. Her neighbor also was disabled and received a bag. And a couple of more were the same. 
I can't imagine these people surviving another week. On Tuesday, there was no sign that Russia's assault on Kharkiv would end anytime soon. Hello? Yes. I'm alive, <laughs> once again. Well, that's that's the best news I've had all day. Right now I'm standing at my balcony just looking through the window and it's so, so quiet. So dark also because, you know, everyone shuts down their lights. So it's like almost completely dark in the center of a major city. Now that it's quiet and I'm not worried, or at least not on the edge, feels really good just standing here, looking through the window. No blasts, no explosions. But in my mother's house, which is right across the street, a couple of windows exploded, even though I know there were no shelling here anywhere near like one kilometer radius nothing fell i'm pretty sure about that i know a lot of stuff that fell like two kilometers away from me but that's that's pretty far right two kilometers (laughs) that's not far at all the show's co-editor kim gittleson will keep checking in with dimitri I think children's play matters for a couple of reasons. One is it allows children to deal with very difficult, stressful things which they might not be able to deal with in any other way. Joel Budd is social affairs editor at The Economist. And the second reason is that, in a way, children are sort of the guardians of oral tradition. You know, sort of adults 100 years ago or 200 years ago were singing songs and doing dances, which I don't know But children do know the songs and dances and rhymes that children were doing 100 or or 200 years ago. And broadly, how has the pandemic influenced that play and, and how do we know that? Obviously, its main effect was to separate children from each other. You know, children weren't able to go to school. They weren't able to play together in each other's homes. They weren't even able to play on the streets, although some of them did anyway. So it kind of forced children back into their homes. It seems to have made play in some ways more traditional and in some ways much less traditional. One thing that the coronavirus pandemic did 
is it gave children new words and new ideas to play with, which they hadn't had before. What, what do you mean? What are some examples of the, the new words and new ideas? People who study children's play started to notice pretty quickly that when children were allowed to get together, COVID or Rona, as they often called it, had found its way into their play. So they started to play games like COVID tag or COVID tig. They started to sort of mimic swabbing or vaccination. One nine-year-old Australian boy called Griffin told a research group called the Pandemic Play Project that he had created a new game which he called Corona Tip. If you get tips, you're in Corona, and it's a build-ups. And that means, like, if you tip someone, they're in with you. I see. So you get have more than one person in? No. So you start off with only one person. But once they tip a couple of people, they're also in with that person. And we've also invented one called Corona Bull Rush, which is bull rush, except it's also build-ups. If you get tipped, you're basically in Corona. Many people listening to that account, certainly many children who hear that account, will realise that this isn't actually a new game. My children refer to that game as infection. It's a sort of snowballing tag game. But it's significant that Griffin seemed to think that calling it Corona Tip and describing children who had been tagged as being in Corona made the game kind of better. And in some sense, he really believed that he had created something new here. There are other examples of children feeding COVID into their play. One Danish researcher said that they had started to sing songs about COVID. There was another group which saw children again playing a, a variant of tag, but this time they could sort of free other children from being tagged by touching them with stones, and, and the stones sort of represented vaccines. So that's the, the dynamic where kids have been able to actually hang out with one another, but for a lot of places and during a lot of the pandemic, that, that hasn't been the case. What, what are things like in, on, the, on the home front? So a lot of children were simply kept at home for very, very long periods, and particularly in Australia. And so they had to, you know, devise ways of either playing by themselves or playing uh, with their parents or playing online with other children. And again, they often sort of fed corona into their play. So, for example, they would play things like Animal Crossing or Minecraft, and they would do things like create little sort of covid clinics in their Minecraft worlds. Young children were spotted by British researchers playing sort of by themselves in ways that seemed to sort of act out their anxieties about COVID. So there's one girl who was filmed swabbing the nose of a toy horse, a kind of plastic toy horse. She was sort of testing her horse for COVID. All of this suggests that children were using play to try to control their world but also kids spent a lot more time online during during all of that time than they would have beforehand. Yes, they did. That is something that many parents had worried about a great deal before COVID struck. After COVID appeared in early 2020, they just sort of felt, well, it's kind of online play with peers or no play with peers at all. <laughs> and, and, and they preferred online play. That then seemed to colour their sort of real-world play. Again, in Australia, one group of children was spotted playing a kind of live-action version of Among Us. So Among Us is a computer game where one or two characters go around kind of taking out the other players. 
when these children got together, they were so used to playing this game with each other, they tried to do a kind of jokey, real-life version of it. Children also started to do things that their parents or even their grandparents would have recognised. Children in many cities started to draw sort of hopscotch patterns on the pavements in front of their homes in chalk. And that seems to support the the notion you mentioned that kids are the carriers of oral histories and things gone by. Yes. Some of these researchers are quite strongly influenced by a married couple called Iona and Peter Opie, who did a great deal of research in Britain, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s. They simply hung around in uh, British playgrounds, seeing what the children were up to. They noticed, for example, that children are very often telling jokes or singing songs that are extremely old, but that they also very, very frequently claim to have just made this thing up. The OPs were quite concerned that they were perhaps becoming mass media consumers rather than guardians of a kind of oral tradition. But what the OP started to notice sort of later on is that actually what children were doing was sort of feeding in new experiences into the tradition. And that's what they seem to have done with COVID. So that is to say we're going to be seeing from kids generations hence playing around uh, singing songs about COVID, playing COVID-related games? I think that's quite likely. COVID is quite a good word. Rona is quite a good word. Corona is quite a good word. And Children like strange words, words that rhyme with things. American children, um, after all, play a basic sort of tag game, which they call cooties. It's not exactly clear what a cootie is, but it seems to be decades-old military slang for a louse. And no American child, I think, knows that that's what it actually means. I I remember getting my cootie shot, and I never knew that. (laughs) Exactly. But the word is so good that children will continue to use it. And I suspect that COVID may prove to be similar. Thanks very much for your time, Joel. Thank you. Muralism has a long history in Mexico. Sarah Burke is the Economist Mexico City Bureau Chief. There are wall paintings by the Olmecs, which was the first major civilization in the region. And then there are frescoes painted by the Spanish to dramatize Bible stories to convert the population. But the real mural movement in Mexico that's particularly famous is the one that took place after the Mexican Revolution in 1920. And the government recruited muralists, including very famous artists such as Diego Rivera, to foster a sense of identity in a country where there are many languages, many ethnicities, and people had fought for different reasons. And again, it's a population that was at that point illiterate. And so they paid the artists to create these murals across mainly Mexico City, but also outside, and to travel widely around Mexico to, to find things to paint. Then from the 1960s, it declined and murals became more of a private enterprise. But now it's coming back. Around 7,500 new works have been commissioned by Iztapalapa, which is an area of Mexico City that's densely populated and very insecure. And since 2018, they've commissioned all these murals. And the aim is not purely aesthetic. I mean, they're very beautiful, bold colours, big shapes and pictures and faces of people. But the idea is that officials in Iztapalapa want to make this a safer place for residents to live. And so what do those paintings look like? 
I mean, the murals are beautiful. They're very colourful, very bold, bright greens, yellows, pinks, you know, very stark, striking shapes and faces. They have slogans saying no to violence or girls and boys are equal. And the ones of women's faces are particularly striking. You know, they're very large portraits and it gives them a sort of presence in the public space. So, for example, there's Lupita Bautista. She's a world champion boxer. And part of the reason there are so many women is that this whole project grew out of a push to improve the lot for women in this area of what is still a very male-dominated country. Things like the killing of women remain tragically high still. So part of the idea is just to make women more visible in the public space. And so what has the general response been to these murals? So at the start, the mayor told me that lots of people were skeptical. They didn't, you know, really want the paintings on their houses and shops. But now they seem to really like them. I mean, people come to the council and they request them. They ask for a muralist to come and put something on their wall. They work with the artists so they get a say in what goes there, along with, you know, the city obviously has its ideas of what it wants there. Some people I heard criticise it and they said, well, this is paid for by Istapelapa's authorities and that undercuts its authenticity. But it's worth pointing out that it was Mexico's education ministry that paid muralists like Diego Rivera after the Mexican Revolution. This has always been something that has been government-backed. And the artists still have quite a lot of leeway to paint what they want to. So you mentioned Diego Rivera is obviously one of Mexico's most renowned muralists. What is his legacy like today? What has been the impact of those post-revolutionary murals? Are they still popular? Have they, have they been forgotten? I mean, they're hugely popular. People trek around Mexico City and other places to see them. But more than that, lots of historians think that they actually shaped both how Mexicans saw and today see themselves and also how foreigners saw them as well. One of the things is just this celebration of the mixing of Spanish and indigenous peoples. So one of the most famous and very loved murals here is by Orozco, and it depicts Hernán Cortés, the conquistador, and Melinche, who is his indigenous interpreter and later lover. And they had a child who is considered one of the first mestizos, the first mixed Mexicans. And this is something that really informs Mexican identity today. Do you think today's murals might have a similar impact? I mean, it's hard to imagine they'll have quite the same scope. But, you know, that's not to say they can't have an impact within their smaller, narrower domain. There's some evidence that since this project started, and, you know, there are lots of other factors as well, that some crimes have fallen, such as those involving firearms. That could be for many reasons. The council has also put more lighting in and all the rest of it. But it's definitely true that the murals are popular and make people in their neighbourhood feel better about where they come from. Lots of people said they were very proud of this this art that's basically on their streets everywhere. And they hope that soon other people might come to see Istapalapa, which has always been sort of looked down on in the same way that residents are now starting to do so. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show, and don't forget to send in your questions about Ukraine for Friday's show. Email us at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.